My name is Caleb Bates. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm one of the elders here at Cross Point Baptist Church. So I want to say again, just thank you all for being here this morning. It really is a joyous and exciting time uh, for me to be here, uh, to stand here today and to speak today. And as Pastor West has mentioned, we're going to take a short break from our series in Exodus, as we uh, kind of do about this time each year, to focus our attention on the time of the Advent, on Christ and his appearing. So this is our first Sunday doing that uh, over the next month. Uh, and we're, what we're going to be doing during this time is is focusing our attention in, in two ways. Uh, one is where we look back to the promise uh, of the coming Messiah. And two, where we look forward with the, with the promise in hand of his return, the return of our of Savior and King. And as Pastor West has already mentioned this morning, the title of our, our message is that the promised one is a snake crusher. Um, and you'll kind of see why, and you, you see on the front of our, our notes uh, what that's going to look like. Uh, spoiler alert that it's Jesus. He's the snake crusher. So, um, But what I want us to look at this morning is not just the promise that we see in Scripture, but the need that we have for that promise. Um, what need does is it, it helps us to, to understand value, okay? So I can say that I understand the value of a parachute, but the guy who's about to jump out the plane has a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of the value of the parachute. Um, and we can say that we uh, appreciate and we need Jesus. But what I want us to see today is how great our need is for Jesus, the gravity of that. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, with that thought in mind, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. <clears throat> that's going to be where we're reading from this morning. And as you do, if you would, please stand with me uh, in honor and in thanks of God's word as we read. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read the whole chapter. This is verses 1 through verse 24. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till, the, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. <clears throat> Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray this morning before we get started. Father, we are thankful and we are hopeful and we are grateful for your word this morning, God. Um, You don't owe us anything as we've read right here in Genesis. We choose our own way and so you're under no obligation to give us anything good, Father. But we are thankful that even here this morning, God, we have your word and we have your spirit. And so I pray, Father, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to see your goodness to see our great need, and Father, to see your faithfulness to your people. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and sit down. So what what we're going to look at this morning uh, first is what is commonly known in Scripture as the fall. Um, And what we're going to look at as we look at the text here, this is kind of our, our big picture and our main point is that God's promise of a snake crusher doesn't eliminate the immediate consequences of man's rebellion. But it does begin to show us God's willingness to extend undeserved kindness. And also it creates eager expectation in us for the fulfillment of the promise that he gives. Um, So what we're going to look at this morning kind of revolves around those things. Uh, What leads up to the fall, the fall itself, And how God is going to respond to everybody involved. And even how he responds to us is what we're going to look at. So I've got four points that I'm going to give you this morning. So you know, once we reach around point number four, we're making, we're making, home plate. okay? So I know we don't have the points up on the screen, so that kind of gives us a little idea of where we are and where we're going this morning. So um, point number one is this the serpent and humanity's fall. We're going to look at the first seven verses in doing this. So in verses one through seven, if you have your Bible, we see the introduction of this serpent figure um, and his interaction that's ultimately going to lead to humanity's fall. There's a lot of cool, interesting details in the scripture 
of the history of the serpent, who he is, where he comes from. Um, But what I want us to focus on this morning is who he is pertaining to this event. Okay, so look at this with me. Look at verse number one. The serpent is introduced as being subtle or crafty, depending on your uh, translation you're reading. And we see this in the way that he approaches Eve uh, with a question, not an innocent question. Uh, but it's a question with the intent to deceive and to create doubt, to create uncertainty. Verse 1, he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is, this is a sneaky move on the serpent's part, okay? Uh, because God gave that command originally to Adam, not to Eve. If you look back in chapter 2 and verse 16, you'll see where God gave this command. He said, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the snake decides to skip Adam and instead to go to his wife, who has secondhand knowledge from her husband of God's command. So I find that that's a sneaky move on the snake's part, but it's a deliberate move. Um, Eve replies in verse number two, but in her response, um, she does something interesting. She adds a restriction to something that, that God never said, something he never gave to them. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she's doing good. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And here's the addition. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, this is interesting because that's not something God actually said. So we see something really interesting going on in Eve, even before she takes the fruit. Something in Eve has said, it's okay to add to what God has said. Uh, and that's interesting. It's, it's one thing if you and I embellish the truth a little bit or, you know, Wes said this and this. He, maybe he didn't really say that extra part, but I say he did. But it's another thing when God himself says something and you tack something onto it. Because now you've got God's perfect word being added onto. So what God said specifically wasn't enough. And so she adds to what God said. And if you look in verse 4, this is where we get the lie from the serpent that would serve to deceive Eve. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die, says the serpent. You're good. You're not going to die. This is the opposite of what God has already said. This is a blatant lie to what God has already said. Um, But for some reason, this totally registers with Eve. Like I said, there's already something interesting going on in Eve. And when when the snake says, you're not going to die, you're going to be like God. You're going to get knowledge. Eve eats it up. She loves it. This idea of being like God, this idea of knowing good and evil, um, and you might say, well, I mean, what's, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with knowing good and evil? This is a good thing, right? This is what we want, the, the ability to see good, the ability to see evil. Um, 
But what's wrong is that up to this point, God is the one who's been giving them instruction on what to do. God has determined what is good, what is evil, and they've followed it, and they've listened, and they've been blessed. They've obeyed. It's all been, it's been the garden. It's been great. Um, but in this temptation, Eve is being told that she can make the calls of what is good and what is evil. She will have the ability to, to see and decide what is good and what's evil and to make the calls for her own life. And I think it's safe to say for all of us that that temptation is, is probably still around today. For us to make the calls of what's good, what's okay, what's appropriate, to call the shots in our own lives. And in doing this, we stand apart from God. We make the call for what's, what's okay, what's appropriate. It's an effective temptation. Right? That's kind of why it's probably at the head of the playbook to let you see, to let you make the calls of what's right and what's wrong. So in verse 6, we see humanity's original fall into sin. If you look with me at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So there's a couple of things to take note of here in this moment. Eve was deceived, okay? Um, And it was in this moment of deception that she looks at the tree, right? Verse 6, the devil tells her, or the serpent says that you're not going to die. You're going to have knowledge. It's going to be great. And she looks. She looks at the tree, and she notices three things, at least, that were, that were told here. The tree looks good for food. It looks like it's a delight to the eyes, and it's desired to make one wise. So she was deceived. The snake came to her, who didn't get the original command, and says, this is actually what God is doing. And in a moment of uncertainty, a moment of untrust, she makes uh, a move. And you might say, well, maybe she wasn't deceived. You know, maybe she, maybe she knew what she was doing. But I've got a couple verses here. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3. Paul uses this. He says, but I'm afraid to the Corinthians. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunningness, your thoughts would also be led astray. And then again in 1 Timothy chapter, chapter 2 and verse 14, it says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and she became a transgressor. So she was deceived and more. She actually becomes a transgressor against God. And the second thing that I think is interesting to take note of is that Eve was deceived as her husband was right there standing by watching, seeing what was happening. She gave some of the fruit to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. So Eve was deceived, and she ate the fruit. Adam was not deceived got the direct command from God, saw the whole thing, and decided to take anyway. That's an indictment on us, on the man, that Eve, yeah, she was deceived. She was confused. Maybe she had some misinformation. Maybe her mind was running. She was deceived. Adam was not deceived, and he decided to take the fruit, and he chose 
to rebel in full understanding of what he was doing. Standing there with his wife while the snake was just misrepresenting his God, lying to his wife, and he's just going to stand there going along knowing full well that this isn't what God said. For sure, I'll take some of that too. What the snake said actually doesn't sound that bad, knowledge of it all. And in uh, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, the prophet Hosea actually compares Adam and unrepentant Israel and Judah. And he says this, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant and dealt faithlessly with me. So in both situations with Adam and Eve, they've both become transgressors against God. So this wasn't just an innocent mistake on Adam and Eve's part. They have placed themselves in a position of willful, thought-out opposition to what God has said, and they've become transgressors against him. So they're not just innocent bystanders. This wasn't like, when we, when we call it the fall, this wasn't like a trip and a fell and, oh, it was, it was a mistake, God. It was totally a mistake. I didn't mean to do that. I, I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I tripped over that hole right there, and I fell. No, no, no. They knew what they were doing, and they were willful in it. So this is on them. And it's on this point that the tree that they ate the fruit from has its effect in their lives, the knowledge of good and evil. But the knowledge that they thought that they were going to get, the ability to, to make the calls for their life, is not the knowledge that they got. What they actually got was the knowledge of their own sinfulness, their own evil, their own rebellion, in contrast to a good and perfect and holy God. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened in this moment, and so for the first time in their existence, in their life, they experienced shame. And so they take fig leaves and they sew them together in such a way as to try to create coverings for their newfound shame. And if we were honest, I think that we still do that today. Uh, because that's what sin does. It causes us to want to cover our shame in front of God. Uh, and we try to do that with things like, you know, good works. We do it good things that we can be recognized for, maybe serving the community, maybe giving money to charities, charities, maybe with religious activities, devoid of any real submission or repentance before God. Activities. We try, and, we try to cover our shame before God, and it's fig leaves. So it's, it's after this point, as we'll see in our next point, point number two coming up, that God enters with a question that I think is worth looking at. So point number two is this. Point number two is a question, where are you? And this is, uh, we'll look at verses 8 through 13 as we, as we do this. The question is, where are you? And in this section of Scripture, what we see is that God is actually seeking out those that are actively rejecting him actively hiding from them. And this is amazing, amazing because we know that God doesn't change, okay? Malachi 3.6, I'm the Lord, I don't change. So who God is is who he has always been. 
And in Romans 5, chapter 8, it says this, that God shows his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So here we see this being played out in the garden, that, that God is actively seeking in real time sinners who are not seeking for him. Okay? Real time, active hiding, active running, active uh, trying to get away from God. In real time, God is seeking them out. So look at this question in verse number eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? And so there's practically a whole sermon like right there in those three words from God. Where are you? Where are you? Um, You know, God's asking, man, where are you? Where are you while your wife is being tempted, Adam? Uh, Where are you while my name and my character are being misrepresented and maligned by the serpent? Where are you? So this is like a question and a half from God. This is a huge question. Now, here's something to think about. Do you think God asked this question, where are you, because he just didn't know? Right? God's, he just doesn't know what's going on. Of course not. God's not lacking any knowledge, and he's not trying to learn new information, and he's not waiting to see what we're going to do to see how he's going to respond. That's, that's not who God is. That's not how God works. Jeremiah 24 and verse 24 says this, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? He fills the heavens and the earth. Psalms 139 and verse 1 and 2 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. So not only does he fill the heavens and the earth, he knows our thoughts. What are we going to do? What are we going to hide? Where are we going to go? There's nowhere to go. So why would God ask the question, where are you? And this is pretty interesting. A couple things. One, he asks it out loud. God asks the question out loud. So I think that gives us something to think about. He asks it out loud like, um, like a parent would ask their child. You know, if you've ever walked up on your kids doing something ridiculous and they don't see you, like they're standing on the table unscrewing the light bulb, I don't know who would ever have done that. Uh, and you walk up and you see him and you're like, what are you doing? And <laughs> You know, and they, you already know what he's doing. You see what he's doing. But you're making yourself known to him. And you're kind of giving him a chance to respond. You're calling him out. And, and you want him to be honest to you in his response, right? What are you doing? And so God wants Adam to answer, to come out of his hiding to reveal himself, and to confess. He asks this question out loud. Uh, But also, I think it's because what Adam and Eve did in sinning didn't happen in a vacuum, okay? It wasn't a quiet, secret thing that just happened that nobody knows about. Um, Now, we aren't told exactly when God made the angels and all the other spiritual beings mentioned in Scripture, but we do know that according to Job in chapter 38, that they were already in existence at the creation of the world 
actually observing and shouting for joy at God's creative process. So they would have certainly witnessed humanity's rebellion, okay? And so God comes and he asks the question out loud because surely they see what's going on and they're wondering, what's going to happen? What's he going to do? Is this going to slip? Is it going to slide? Is he going to say something? And so God comes out and he asks the question, what are you doing? Where are you? Look again at verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And Adam responds in this way. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God responds and says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree uh, which I commanded you not to eat? And the man says, it was the woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord says to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the refusal to own their own sin begins. It begins very early in our history. Um, They shift the blame to the next person, and it's not their fault. And so, Crosspoint, I have to ask the question, we have to ask ourselves, is could this be said of any of us? Do we own our own sin and repent of them? Does every self-reflection come back the same way that we see here with Adam and Eve? I mean, it just wasn't my fault. It just, it wasn't me. It was somebody else. And maybe it isn't your fault. You know, I'm not here to guilt trip you into saying it's your fault. But in situations where we could possibly be in sin, just possibly, we could just possibly be in sin, I think that we should be quick to say with the psalmist in Psalms 139, it says, search me, O God. Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Right? That's how we should, res- we should respond, even with the possibility of being in sin. God, I don't even know if this is my fault or not. But if it is, just search me and find out. See if there's anything in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But that's not what we see here with Adam and Eve. Adam starts off in true, I mean, I mean, I hate to even use the word, but Dude looks like a buffoon. It's not me. It's not me, Lord. Uh, you know, I, I didn't pick this woman. He kind of low-key calls God out. This is the woman you gave me. Um, you know, you gave her to me. She gave me some fruit. I ate it. That's, that's, that's all I did, God. <laughs> Are you kidding me, bro? You, that's, that's how you're going to respond to God? And then the woman, she says, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, Lord. The serpent, he deceived me. I was, I was confused. He tricked me, and so I ate. That's all I did. And there's no repentance. So look, look down to, to verse 16. I want to skip down a little bit because this brings us to God's response to Adam and Eve. And this is point number three. Point number three is humanity's position. Verse 16, look at what, what God says to the woman. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So because of the sin from from our rebellion to the woman, he says two things. One, he says there's going to be pain in childbearing and in birth. 
Um, and as a man, I have only observed uh, what that looks like, what childbearing looks like. So you can have that. Um, it's not something that I ever have to go through. And so, you know, I'm just kind of thankful with my side of the curse, if I could say that, that I don't have to endure the childbearing part. Um, there's definitely pain and discomfort associated with it, as you know, I'm sh- some of you know, I'm sure. Um, and this, this is clearly linked to Eve's sin. But look at the second part of that. This is interesting because he also says that there's going to be a strain now on the marriage relationship. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, now most interpret the second part of this verse to mean that the woman would desire to be in control of her husband, um, but that he would exercise authority over her, that he would rule over her, and that she would be frustrated by the authority that he has over her life. And I think that as we look around um, the culture and, and just the current state of, of marriage that we look at, that we can still see this tension is still evident. Um, there is an, an uncomfortableness that begins to happen in the context of a, of a marriage discussion when you say words like submission. There's just like this weirdness, like, oh boy, please, please, can we not talk about this for very long? Because, you know, you just, you feel the awkwardness, you can feel the tension of what's happening, and that is just an indictment on our sin. Not just to to the men or to the women, to, to all of us, it's an indictment on our sin, that the tension that we feel over something that God has given You know, it just feels awkward. It feels weird. It feels wrong. It feels like that's not what we want. And again, that's our desire for the good and evil and the calling of what's good in our own life. And if I said to you, anyone here in this room this morning, that someone is going to rule over you, but when he does, you're going to experience blessings, you're going to experience things around you functioning like they should, You're going to experience peace. You're going to experience harmony. You're going to experience great productivity in your life. That sounds wonderful, right? That sounds great. That sounds like a rule and a submission that we'd all be happy to take part in. Um, Now, if I go a little further and say that the one exercising this rule over your life is actually Christ himself. Well, yes, that's wonderful. I'll submit to that any day of the week. This This is excellent. The marriage relationship that God has given us is supposed to be the closest example to that picture that we have on earth, right? That that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is his bride, and it's marriage is given as a as a visual depiction of that relationship. And so the sin that we see. Uh, distorting that and, and twisting that and blurring that vision, it's, it's an indictment on our own sin. And then to the man, he says this in verse 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you're going to eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it'll bring forth for you. And you'll eat the plants of the field. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
So to Adam, God says that the actual ground is now cursed because of you. And work is going to be painful, right? Now, work itself was not the curse. But work now is going to be painful, and you're going to have to fight the ground for results. And the ground is going to fight you back, right, with thorns and thistles. And you're going to sweat. There's going to be anxiety and toil and worry and hard work, and you're going to sweat. There's going to be stress as you work the ground. It's going to create sweat. Now, can you imagine God telling you that? This is a, this is a heavy judgment that God's bringing. He says, your sin didn't just curse you, but it's actually cursing the ground. And now everybody who walks on the ground is going to have to fight because of your sin. And if you look in chapter 2, just right before in verses 8 and 9, before this sin, the land literally required no cultivation at all. The land was blessed. God made the land to produce, and, and it did. Verses 8 and 9, <clears throat> the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The ground is, is blessed. God made it, and it was perfect, and it was blessed. And God, uh, man's sin curses the ground, so now he's having to fight against it. And Paul kind of reiterates this and mentions this again in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 20. He says that creation was subjected to futility. Creation itself in sin was subjected to futility. So not only is the ground going to be cursed, but we also see from God that because of sin, human life is going to run its course and return to the dust, which is death. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says that, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death has spread to all men because of sin. So this, this is where it started. This might feel kind of heavy, and if it does, that's good. Because before we get to the promise that God gives, we need to see our position. Our position is that there is judgment, there is a curse, the ground itself is cursed. And this is our position outside of God's goodness and mercy and hope in Jesus. But look with me back at verse number 14 and verse 15, because we're going to transition to humanity's hope. Because God in his undeserved kindness gives a promise of hope. Look at verse 14. This is, this is God's response to the serpent. The Lord God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the earliest and the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Okay? Um, it's, it's called by some teachers and theologians, the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The first gospel in the Bible. To the snake he says that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. 
Now, this is probably not a word that we often use in our life, but essentially what this word means is that I'm going to put hatred, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Um, And just on a side note, this idea of, I wrote this down because I think it's important. In the age of the internet and the age of searching and looking for answers, the offspring of the snake um, simply means that these are his followers, the followers of, of the snake, of the serpent, those who are in rebellion of God. Nothing else, nothing weird you might hear about, what are the, you know, who's the offspring of the serpent? That might be cool. It's people who have rejected God, rejected Jesus, and they're following after the serpent's ways. John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. So that's what we see in that. And to the woman and her offspring, he says this, right? He says, um, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So this is cool. This is good because this means the woman is going to have offspring. This might sound like a simple fact, like, duh. But this means that the promised one is going to be a human. It's going to be a person. It's going to come from the seed of the woman. And the interesting part is this, that God says that I will put him there. Now, this is really interesting for me. I, this, I really nerd out on, on Bible stuff and, and reading into this, that she's from the seed, he's from the seed of the woman, but God is saying that I am going to put him there. I am going to put enmity there. So God will be the one to put the one to whom the snake would have enmity with via the seed of the woman. Isaiah 7, 14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And then again in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So this is interesting because Jesus, the one to come, Born of a woman who God is sending, he said that, it says here that he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. He's going to stomp his head. He's going to stomp his head. And right now in my house, we've got about 15 to 20 little children's books that I read to to Davis and Madeline. And one of them is an animal book. Um, And it's just kind of showing like some animals in the Bible and stuff. We're trying to tie in bible and scripture into their thinking and on the front page of one of them is a snake and it's so interesting that the verse associated with it is this verse um that he's gonna crush your head or he's gonna bruise your head and you're gonna bruise his heel i said madeline what is that it's a snake it's a snake i said madeline jesus is gonna come and stomp the head of the snake he's gonna stomp the snake pow Jesus is going to come and he will stomp the head of the snake and the snake will bruise his heel and this is a picture of what God does in redeeming mankind that it's going to be costly that it's not going to be without price and we might look at this and say it's just a bruise on on the foot it's not that big of a deal that our Savior is actually absolutely going to crush his head. He's just going to walk away with a bruise on his heel. And that's not the case. This promise of hope that comes to us 
It's not light. It's not costless. It, it comes with a heavy cost to our Savior. And it points to the price that Jesus would pay on the hill of Golgotha. Where the Bible says that for the joy set before him, Hebrews chapter 12, that he would endure the cross. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So it's a heavy cost. So what this promise does in verse 15 that God gives us is that it creates an expectation in us of a redeemer for mankind from this curse of sin, one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the one who would do what Adam could not and would not do when he saw the serpent defaming God's name, calling God a liar. Yeah, he deceived Eve, but he called God a liar. But God didn't really say that. He would do what the first Adam would not do. Look with me at verse 21. We're getting kind of close to the end of this message here, but I, I want us to focus on this. Verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So in, instead of giving Adam and Eve what they deserved, which would have been justice, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Instead of giving them what they deserved, he gives them the promise of a redeemer, and he shows compassion in providing a covering for their shame and for their, for their rebellion, not just a better fig leaf, but he gives them skins to cover. And that tells us that there was, even in that moment, that there was a sacrifice, there was cost to what they did. It's not just a better fig leaf what God does for us. And so today, here in this moment, cross point, the same God who called to Adam and said, where are you? Knowing everything of Adam's sin already, that same God is alive today and he calls to us and he commands us to repent and to come to him. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 36, he said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We're told that if we confess, if we repent, he, being Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to forgive us of our rebellion, and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. He's slow to anger. And he is abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. But it says that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
so if you are here this morning and you would say that just in your own reflection of yourself, you would, you would say, you know what, I'm pretty sure if I related to one of these in the story that I'd probably relate to Adam. I'm honestly not sure if I'm where I need to be with him right now. And to be quite honest, I wouldn't even know what to do about it at this point. There is hope to be found in Jesus, the one who has come to crush the serpent's head. And so we want to, if that's you here this morning, we want to give you the opportunity to talk to you. Um, We want you to know that myself and the other elders here, that we're available, that we're approachable, that you can come and talk to us, that we want to talk to you and to show you what that looks like. Um, And if you'll let us, to lead you in, in how that how that works and how that looks and what the next steps in repentance looks like. So, with that said, guys, let me let me pray for us this morning. If you would bow your heads with me, Father, this message that you are, in fact, the pro- Jesus is the promised snake crusher. That there is hope to be found in Christ, but that it is a costly hope. That it, it costs the life of Jesus. And Father, I'm thankful for this time today, God, as we've had time to reflect on, on our great need for Jesus. But Lord, even in our, our great need, we have an even greater hope in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that even though we aren't deserving of good news, that just like we see in the garden as you actively sought out Adam and Eve, that here this morning we have your word, Father, and we have the call to repent and to come to you, and that you would in no way cast out those that do, God. Lord, we love you this morning. We're thankful, Father, for your promise. We're thankful for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.